following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 17th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Guys, if you want to grab your Bibles and make your way to the Old Testament book of Esther, we're going to be in Esther chapter 2 this morning. Now, as you're making your way to Esther chapter 2, I will let you in on something of my delight. I have enjoyed over the last number of years kind of the, the rise or the increase in documentaries, television shows, you know, even, even comedy specials. Uh, that are highlighting and bringing attention to the challenge that second-generation American millennials in particular face growing up in this country with parents who immigrated to America from another country. And, and these, these shows and these documentaries, these specials, they're, they're highlighting the tensions of growing up in some sense caught between the expectation of two entirely different cultures. You know, parents who say, when you walk into my house, America ends at this front door. And they're caught living between two cultures and two worlds that that often hold out antithetical values, antithetical passions, and and there's a desire on one hand to honor and appreciate, respect, and, and live in the values and the culture of one, but there's this enormous draw by this other world and this other culture that you find yourself in much easier to navigate than even your parents are able to navigate it. And it holds out certain promises and it holds out certain expectations and it holds out certain values. And and there's just this wonderful rise in in media and in all forms between these second generation uh, actors and actresses and comedians that are are highlighting this. And, And while no one would look at me with my blonde hair and blue eyes, white American male upbringing, and say that I have any understanding of what that must be like being caught between those two worlds of expectation and disappointment, and you're probably right when it comes to those things, but as a follower of Jesus, there is an acute sense in which you and I know what it is to be caught between the expectations and the values of two competing worlds, of two competing systems vying for our hearts, vying for our attention, shaping the way we understand who we are. There there is a world that we live in that that holds out a set of promises that operates on a a shifting but, but somewhat deeply consistent standard of values. And then there is the world in which God, by his grace, has brought us into the kingdom of his son, Paul says, that he has brought us into through faith in his son that shapes us in an entirely different way, that says a different thing about who we are, that holds out different promises, that is built upon different expectations and and values. And you and I, as followers of Jesus, we find ourselves also living in the tension of these two cultures or these two worlds or, or these two kingdoms. Our daily life and the decisions we made are going to be shaped, they're going to be formed by one of those two things. And that's not unique to us. It's always been this way for God's people. You know, when God called his people to himself, when God spoke to Abraham and said, from you I am going to bring a people and I am going to commit myself to them. I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people From that moment when God delivered his people out of slavery and into the land that he has promised, he gave them his word. 
that would shape their understanding of who they were and how they were to live, how their life was to be lived that would be reflective of his glory and deeply and joyful for their own hearts and their own lives. Ever since God has formed a people to himself, placed them in the land that he had promised, God's people have been a people caught between two worlds and two cultures. Eugene Peterson, he wrote about it this way. God took his people and he dumped them into the moral chaos of pagan Canaanite culture, a cesspool of vile customs and promiscuity. The Hebrews needed guidelines on fundamental everyday issues of diet, nutrition, hygiene, disease, animals and agriculture, sex and other aspects of moral behavior. But most of all, they needed worship rituals that would keep them attentive to God's preservation and forgiveness in their everyday lives. A sacrificial system that would replace the abhorrent child-burning sacrifices to the Canaanite god Molech. Do you you hear how Peterson talked about God's word being formative? to the hearts and the lives of his people as they lived distinct lives shaped by his word in another culture, in another place, to his glory and for their joy. He didn't write about God's word to his people being restrictive on their life, but rather being formative for the life that would glorify God and bring them delight. But you know the story from the promised land of Canaan onward. This was to be how God's people lived, irregardless of where they were. But obedience was rarely consistent. The lure of other cultures, the lure of other worlds, the temptation of other promises and expectations, the way of life of a surrounding world would often prove to be too strong for the hearts of God's people. And they would find themselves giving in and ultimately assimilating themselves into the cultures around them rather than living distinctively amongst them. And God in different ways and in different times throughout the stories from the judges to the kings would bring discipline upon his people for their disobedience. And a time would come, and you may remember if you were with us when we started to go through the first half of the book of Daniel, a time would come when God would use the very surrounding cultures to discipline his people for their sin. And God would allow the Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar to come and to take his people into exile in Babylon, to take his people away from the temple, the heart of their worship to the one true God, where his presence dwelled amongst them in the Holy of Holies, away from the festivals and the systems and the sacrifices that God had instituted, away in a sense, even metaphorically, but also physically from the presence of God into exile for their disobedience. But I want you to catch a a bigger picture, and we're gonna get to Esther 2 here in just a second. As God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take the Israelites into captivity in Babylon, just on the other side of the Babylonian borders, the Persian Empire was growing in power and in size. There was a Persian king named Cyrus who was expanding Persia's borders at a rapid pace. And there could only be two kings on the hill in that time. So Cyrus decided that he was going to attack Babylon. And Cyrus, as king of the Persian Empire at the time, did defeat the Babylonian Empire. And in defeating the Babylonian Empire, what was theirs became his. 
including the Israelites that the Babylonians had taken into captivity years before. But this was according to God's word. You may remember back in the beginning of Ezra chapter 1, God had already determined to purpose in the heart of Cyrus, this Persian king, to send his people back from their exile in a foreign land back to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild the temple, reestablish the worship that he had ordained, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the walls. You find that story in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Just as God had promised would happen after their years of exile, he would let his people go home. And he would provide for them through Cyrus not only the freedom to go back, but the resources needed to reestablish Jerusalem and reestablish the temple. But here's the thing. When that happened according to God's word, when he fulfilled his promise and through Cyrus released the Israelites back to Jerusalem, not everybody went. There were a couple of waves of Israelites that made their way back to Jerusalem, but there were some who decided to stay in Persia. You see, going back to Jerusalem was going to be hard work. Everything had to be rebuilt. The city, the temple, the walls. Whatever you had known of life in the Persian Empire that wasn't necessarily kind towards the Israelites, but was empathetic to all the nations that they conquered. They were allowed to prosper and to to grow and to build while in the Persian Empire. The prospect of going back to Israel, going back to Jerusalem, having to go through all that work when maybe in Persia you had been able to establish yourself and, and barely have a fairly comfortable life for yourself there. The prospect of going back, even though God has called you back to himself, It was a little daunting. So a number of Israelites stayed in Persia. They didn't go back. They chose to take the path of least resistance. We never really hear much about them. We read Ezra, we read Nehemiah. We know the stories of going back and rebuilding, fighting off the enemies, all that being done, God supplying, God providing all along the way. But what of the Israelites who stayed in Persia? What are the ones who found life in Persia just to be more comfortable than going back in obedience to God and rebuilding the city? Well, the book of Esther is a slice of life for those that stayed in Persia. While there were waves of Israelites going back to Jerusalem, Esther occurs in between the first and the second wave of those returnees. This is a bit of the story of some of those who stayed in Persia. Cyrus, the Persian king, who would allow the Israelites to go back, he would eventually lose his life on the battlefield. And he would give his kingdom to another king. That king was Darius. Darius, we mentioned last week, led the Persian empire in a battle against the Greeks, but he wasn't successful. He wasn't defeated, but he wasn't successful. But he too would die. And he would give his empire, the Persian empire, to his 32-year-old son, Xerxes, who we met last week who is the king in the story of Esther. And last week in Esther chapter one, we met Xerxes throwing a party in the third year of his reign for his own glory, establishing himself and his worth in the eyes of all the people and in trying also to support, to gather support for an eventual raid back into the land of Greece, into the Greek empire. And we saw him throw a big party for himself and we saw him throw a big temper tantrum when his queen Vashti was not obedient to his commands. Well, this morning, we are going to pick up the story in Esther chapter 2. 
after these things, the events of Esther, Esther chapter 1, when the anger of King Ahasuerus, not Xerxes, all right? So remember, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew translation of his Persian name, Xerxes. When Xerxes had, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, let me just say this as we get going through the story. Chapters one and two are still setting the stage. They're still giving us the context for the drama that's going to unfold throughout the rest of the story. And we'll see in just a few minutes in, in later verses in chapter two, we're about four years removed from that party and that decree against Vashti. And historians tell us, those who have studied the Persian Empire, tell us that in, in the chronology of the book of Esther and in the chronology of the Persian Empire, it was in these four-ish to five-ish years between chapters one and chapter two that Xerxes would indeed try to avenge the loss of his father and lead the Persian Empire in a battle against the Greek Empire. It was in these four years, and I love to tell the story, but I don't have time. It was in these four years that historians believe the great battle of Thermopylae, if you've seen 300, actually occurred. When the Persian army overwhelmed and outnumbered the Greek army, so much so they were said to block out the sun with their 10,000s of arrows, but they were given the knowledge of how to get around and defeat the Greek empire. And so the Spartan commander sent the majority of the army back to Greece to rally the troops so that they could defend themselves against the onslaught of the Persians, and they did. The Persian Xerxes was not able to conquer the Greek empire. He was not overthrown by them, but he couldn't conquer them. So he returned home later from that campaign utterly ashamed. Historians say the empire was on the edge of bankruptcy from all that he spent in that campaign against the Greeks in an unsuccessful campaign against the Greeks. And so here we are in chapter two, picking up on Xerxes back in Susa after that campaign, sitting here in regret. Because when you read that he remembered the decrees about Vashti, that word remember is the word you and I would carry for nostalgia or regret. It's a country music song. It's, it's not Xerxes remembering the facts that she said no, and they said she, could be she would be removed from his presence. It's him wishing that wasn't the case. It's regretting the consequences of his actions. But once again, just like last week, we, we see Xerxes is not going to be smart enough to be able to strategize his own way out of these situations. Look at verse two. Then the king's young men who attended to him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of all the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king. And he did so. Now here's an aside. There are 10,000 rabbit trails we could take this morning, and I'm going to be tempted to take most of them but we're not going to do it. But here is one, just by way of connection, lest you distance yourself from Xerxes, especially as you hear what's going to happen in this chapter. No one would expect the Persian king like Xerxes, a Gentile like Xerxes, in a time of sorrow and in a time of regret, to go to God's word for encouragement or direction or wisdom. That's not the expectation you would have of Xerxes. 
But as the king of the largest empire in the world, with generations of strategy and wisdom around him, you wouldn't expect him either to go to his young men. But that's what he does. He goes to his buddies. He goes to his contemporaries. Friends, you know what it's like to be in a moment when maybe out of bitterness, maybe out of frustration, maybe out of anger, maybe you've said something or done something rashly that is bringing a relationship or a situation teetering on the edge of destruction. And the reality of it is you don't want counsel. You don't want someone to sit down with you with God's word and allow God's word to expose the underbelly of your selfishness, the underbelly of your sin, the underbelly of your ambition, the underbelly of your bitterness. You don't want God's word to expose that. You want to sit down with someone to tell you you're right. That's what you want. That's what's happening here with Xerxes. He's not looking for wisdom in how to handle this. He's looking for his young men to appease his heart to tickle his ears, to tell him what he wants to hear. We're not too dissimilar from him because in just a minute, you're going to want to distance yourself from him as far as you can. But what about the advice they give him? The advice is horrible. Systematically travel the empire and remove from their homes the most beautiful young women in the empire? to bring to the palace in an effort to win your favor and maybe be queen? It's horrible. Look down at verse 12. We'll, we'll come back, I promise. Look down at verse 12. This will just give you a little bit of an insight ahead of, of, of what this all entails. When the turn came for each of these young women to go into King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When young women went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So, so whatever she thought she needed in order to win his favor so that she could become queen, whether that was a certain set of clothes, whether maybe it was a particular musical instrument because she was going to play for the king, whatever she thought she needed to give herself the advantage to win the king's favor, it was hers. So in the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shahasagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Let me just say this. If you have ever heard someone try to talk about Esther chapter 2, or if you've ever read anyone writing about Esther chapter 2, and it's happened in the last 12 plus years, you have probably heard someone try to diffuse the tension of Esther chapter 2 by relating what's happening here to the modern version of The Bachelor. And I know some of you are already thinking and making that connection in your mind. But as foul as The Bachelor actually is, this is not quite like The Bachelor. None of these women signed up for this. None of these women, as you read in the story, get to go home again. After they would have their audience with the king, 
they would be sent to another section of the palace. If they were not the one the king chose to be the queen, they would live out the rest of their life there in the palace as one of the concubines. They don't get to go home. If the king ever calls on them again, if he remembers them and he calls on them again, they may go see the king. But if not, they just live in the palace. If under any circumstance with the king, they were to have a child, that child would be raised in the palace with his mom, but he would not be or she would not be a legitimate heir to the Persian throne. Karen Jobes, who is probably the foremost scholar on the book of Esther, she's a professor at Wheaton College right now, she described the life of these women as pampered but purposeless. They would just live it out in the palace from those days forward. It's not quite like The Bachelor. But if you take chapter one, if you consider just what we saw of Xerxes' parade of his own glory, and you put it together with what we're seeing in chapter two, in this process of, of finding a queen for Xerxes, what you have together in some sense is, is an expose of the underlying values of the kingdoms of this world. Xerxes matters because of his worth, because he's got the money, he's got the power. And the most important thing about the woman that's going to be his queen, it's not what family she comes from. Historians tell us that the Persian Empire, the king would have to find a queen from one of six reigning families in the empire. That's not what he did. What's the most important thing about the woman who's going to be his queen? What she looks like and how that form is going to be able to please him. He matters because of what he has. She matters because of what she looks like. Wouldn't it be horrible to live in a world like that? That was sarcastic. Wouldn't it be horrible to live in a world where externals matter more than character? Where what you have matters more than what you are? Where you feel pressure is on every single side to undergo various forms of beauty treatment so that you might measure up to the expectations of the kingdom. And if you don't measure up, you're worthless. Friends, you and I, we, we so easily find our hearts assimilating to these realities, these pressures all around, these tensions of being caught between these two worlds. I mean, just ask yourself, are, are, are you establishing or taking your own sense of value, your own sense of worth, or are you establishing the worth of those around you based on what you or they have? Be it money, be it power, be it networks, be it beauty, be it opportunity, whatever. Or on who you really are. On what God says about you. Is that how you're choosing friends? Is that how you're choosing associates? Is that how you're choosing potential spouses, careers? Friends, the kingdom of this world is much like the kingdom of Persia. You see on display here in chapters one and two. It is built upon and obsessed with, look at my name tag falling down, power and beauty and prestige and wealth. The writer of the book of Esther is trying to lay that bare for us that we might be able to see it 
and understand the responses to it. See, God's people here, even in this time, in the Persian Empire, they were intended by God to live according to his word for his glory and their deepest joy. But just like it is for you and I, fidelity to God's word is harder than you think. And they are caught in the tensions between these two cultures, these two kingdoms. Look back at verse 5. We're finally going to meet a couple of God's people. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. That's going to be super important later in the story. What that means is that he is an actual descendant of King Saul. He was son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, you do the genealogy that the writer just gave you there. What you find is that Mordecai is a late second generation Israelite growing up in the kingdom of Persia. And he introduces us to Mordecai this way particularly because there's something he wants us to understand just from the introduction of Mordecai about him. He introduces us to Mordecai, a Jew, in the citadel of Susa because he wants us to see that Mordecai, at best, is a compromised man. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. It's a Persian name. It's a derivative of the Persian god Marduk. And he's not simply an Israelite living in the city of Susa like everyone else at the bottom of the citadel having to look up at Xerxes. He's actually in the citadel in the seat of power and in the seat and area of politics. And so a decade after this is written and the Israelites are hearing the story of Esther, when they hear that verse read, a a Jew named Mordecai in the citadel of Susa, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to them. Because how could he do that? How could he be so compromised? Now, the writer's not saying that Mordecai is a worshiper of Marduk. He's not saying that Mordecai is an atheist. He's not saying that Mordecai is not a worshiper of the one true God. What he's saying at best is that he's compromised. At best, he's one man in one place and another one in another place. But he's not alone. Keep reading. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Mordecai is raising his cousin, Hadassah, or Esther. Again, she's introduced to us in a specific way because he intends for us to understand certain things at the beginning of the story. Hadassah is a Jewish name. Esther is a Persian name. So when you always hear the story of Esther, it's this pretty Jewish name. It's not, it's Persian. She's living in the tension of two worlds, living in the tension of two cultures. And all you know about her is one thing. What is it? She's beautiful. And in fact, doubly blessed. By mentioning it twice there, that's a device the writers would use for you to understand. She's doubly blessed. She's beautiful beyond beautiful. And he introduces her this way for the reason of you understanding that she, along with her cousin Mordecai, are living in this tension of these two cultures, this tension of these two worlds, and they're somewhat compromised. But he's anticipating what's going to happen. You should be thinking now that you know what the king's young men have advised him to do and how we've met Esther, that somehow those two things are going to come together. And they do. Keep reading verse 8. 
When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, that's what you were supposed to anticipate by the introductions there. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her the cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Now, there's something in there that's going to be very important for the rest of the story as well. He's introducing you to Esther in particular ways as we watch the story unfold in the coming weeks. He says that Esther won the favor of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the women, right? Most of the time in the Old Testament, even many times in the New Testament, when you read about someone of God's people gaining favor in the eyes of others, it's God giving them favor. God gave favor and therefore he won the eyes or won the opportunity. That's not what happened here. The writer is very specific. Esther won favor with Haggai. She figured out how to not only be compliant with the expectations, but to exceed in the expectations of the kingdom. We're learning something about the savvy and the wisdom of Esther, and you're meant to hear it in contrast to the lack of savvy and wisdom of the king. Something about Esther able to win the favor that you're going to see over and over again is going to come into play in the midst of a king who wasn't able to figure out his own way out of his situations. It's going to be important. It's going to come back later. But we also know this about Esther. At this point in the story, she had not made known her people or kindred, verse 10, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The natural reading, even as a dad with daughters, is to say this was supposed to be Mordecai's Liam Neeson moment, right? I've got a particular set of skills. That's not what he does. And the writer is very specifically painting a very particular picture. He wants us to see in the outset of this story as we meet Esther and Mordecai that the path of least resistance and the tension between two kingdoms always leads to some measure of compromise. And so verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who in charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor. Again, there it says, winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She was smart. Every woman that the king brought in had the opportunity to take into with the king whatever they wanted. Esther says, wait a minute. You're in charge of all the king's pleasures. What should I take? Smart. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, verse 16, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther had her chance to make her case in front of the king. And she did. And she won. 
And the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The clock says I have to stop reading the Bible right there, which is probably okay because there's probably enough there in those 18 verses for us to talk about without having to read any further. And so here's the thing. Here are the rabbit trails. What was she thinking? I don't know. What did she feel about this whole thing? I don't know. What were her motives in doing all that? I don't know. Why did Mordecai tell her not to let him know? I don't know. What did she do? I think I know, but I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. The book of Esther is written in such a way that we don't get the motives. We don't get the feelings. We don't get the intentions. We don't get the thoughts. We get the plain reading of the story because we're not meant to get lost in all of that. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but for the first seven centuries of the church, no one wrote about Esther. There's no commentary. There's no collection of sermons or lessons about Esther. Calvin never wrote a commentary on Esther, never preached one sermon on Esther. Decorum wouldn't let me tell you what Martin Luther said about the book of Esther. Everybody read the book of Esther and said, landmine everywhere. Let's just go to Romans. <laughs> it's like the biblical hurt locker for pastors. Like, you got to have a whole team to come in and remove all these bombs. We simply don't know. So many questions in our modern minds rolling around. So many rabbit trails to go down. But here's the thing. Much of what we want to know would only be conjecture. Because when it comes to those things, they don't tell us. But what we do know, like what we do see here, and we know to be true in our own lives, is simply this. The values of the kingdoms of this world are powerful. And we underestimate them to our own peril. See, at this point in the story, what we do know from a plain reading of the story is that Mordecai and Esther are compromised and compliant at best. And here's the thing. I'll just be completely honest with you. That makes theologians on the entire theological spectrum angry. Feminist theologians on the left liberal side of the spectrum, they can't stand Esther at this point in the story. In fact, the hero at this point in the story, who do you think it is? It's Vashti. Vashti said no. Vashti had a voice and Vashti used it. Esther has particular gifts given by God and she uses them exactly as the empire wanted her to. Way over here on this side of the spectrum, everybody's upset at Esther. The expectations of what you would have of God's woman in this place are completely trampled. But over here, on this side of the conservative spectrum, everybody's mad at Esther too, and Mordecai. Why? Well, they weren't the only ones taken into captive that we learn about in the Bible. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, 
taken captivity in the Babylonian Empire, the same exile that brought Mordecai and Esther's ancestors. They were given a prominent place in the empire, all the education, all the opportunity, given Babylonian names. But when it came down to partaking of the king's food, no way, no thank you. Lest you think it was anything you gave me that enabled me to do this, no. I'll learn everything you want me to learn. I'll I'll operate the way I need to operate for the success to happen to here. But if it violates the the worship of the one true God, I'm not going to do it. So conservative theologians are over here reading Mordecai and Esther at this point, and their expectations of them are completely dashed as well. Everybody's frustrated. Because at best, even if you just do a plain reading of the story and you don't try to get into conjecture into what actually happened while she was in the palace and all those different months and weeks, what we do at least know is that she was given the food and she ate it and she married a Gentile. Massive violations of God's word for his people. But here's the thing. If we stop getting so mad at Mordecai and Esther for just a minute, if we stop getting so frustrated at the expectations that we have as we come to the story, if we stop getting so mad they're not meeting what we think they should meet, we just might find the Spirit of God exposing something of our own hearts to us. And that's simply this, to one degree or another, are you and I not doing the same thing we find Mordecai and Esther doing? I mean, honestly, How deeply do you consider the ways your faith? How deeply as a follower of Jesus do you consider God graciously placing you into the kingdom of his son? How often and deeply do you think about how that is meant to shape the way you live your everyday life caught between these two worlds and cultures? The tensions and the values and the promises of the world that you and I find ourselves in holding out and the values, the expectations, the promises that God's kingdom holds out for his people. How often and how deeply do you really consider what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and what that means as you live your life out every single day caught between these different expectations? Who am I as I walk out the door? Am I a follower of Jesus, his disciple, or am I just part of the crowd? When I go to school, am I going to be ethical in the way that I go about my work? Or will I do just what everyone else is doing? As I approach my job, as I approach my coworkers, as I approach those that I'm responsible for, is it, is it just business, it's not personal? Or do the values of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior shape the way we operate? Seeking to love others as we have been loved, to treat them the way we would want to be treated, even if it means disadvantage in the marketplace or a lower profit margin. These aren't just realities that every single one of us as a follower of Jesus has to contend with in the tension between these two worlds. These are tensions the church has to deal with. I mean, historically, the the church in the South did not give voice to the atrocities of the slave trade. Even while great sermons were being preached from pulpits all throughout this city and the South, there was no real voice given to that. And to this day, the prophetic witness of the church in the South has been marred. The distinctiveness of God's people has been blurred at best. The path of least resistance is always a path that leads to a measure of compromise. 
Esther and Mordecai. They were amongst the people of God that were taking the path of least resistance. And because you and I come to the Bible with particular expectations, we, we come to these stories and we find ourselves frustrated. But maybe the problem isn't so much with Esther and Mordecai as much as it is with ourselves. Maybe we're approaching it with the wrong expectations. Esther and Mordecai, the, the stories of God's people, even as we find them right now in the story, and it's not the end of the story, it's part of this is what makes the Bible so amazing to me. Brian Gregory wrote a tremendous book called Inconspicuous Providence, and in that book he said, the Bible is not a chronicle of great moral examples or ethical heroes or spiritual giants. Instead, it's the unfolding story of humanity's brokenness, one sinner at a time, and God's redemptive grace in the midst of it. I mean, if you've been reading CBR with us, even for the last month, you've been in the book of Genesis. You've seen this over and over again from the beginning of the story. Abraham lies about his wife being his sister twice. Two times too many. Jacob, the father of Israel, lies and manipulates at every turn to get what he wants when he wants it. You could go person after person after person after person. So Gregory says, throughout Scripture, God's people morally compromise, ethically fail, and persistently sin, yet, amazingly, God providentially and graciously continues to use them for his redemptive purposes. And the same thing is true for Esther. She's culpable for her failures. Her compromises can't be excused, downplayed, or explained away. Yet, in the larger context of the book, this young girl's moral compromises are used by God to deliver his people from potential extermination. Maybe part of the problem is we approach the Bible with the wrong expectations. We approach it as we read these stories with this idea that God saves those and uses those who deserve it. But that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God persistently and consistently gives his grace to people who don't ask for it, people who don't deserve it, and people who after even receiving it don't fully appreciate it. Friends, that is tremendous news for you and I. People of God caught in the same tensions between two worlds who find ourselves just as often as Esther and Mordecai compromised and compliant at best. How many times have we been willing to compromise because we were unwilling to suffer the consequences for what we knew doing right was going to bring? And then rationalized it. Told ourselves that in that moment we had no other option. Nothing else we could do about it. Friends, what kind of good news is it to know that God is able, and not just able, but willing to take all of those failures and all of those compromises and work them out together for his redemptive glory and our joy? It doesn't mean that what we've done is right. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences that we face in this world for those decisions that we've made. It doesn't mean that since God in his grace is not just willing but able to take all that sin, to take all that compromise and work it together for his purposes so therefore you and I should go sin all the more that grace may abound all the more. No, go to Romans. Everybody wants to go all the time. Go there. 
That's not what it means. But what a great gift it is to know the gracious, redeeming work of God in our life for our compromises. And as you go back and read Esther chapter 2 this week, and you see that all that the kingdom of this world could hold out to Esther, all that Xerxes could hold out to offer her his queen as his bride were just trinkets, were just items of this world that would eventually tarnish and eventually fade. God holds out this gracious, redemptive promise to you and I as a wedding gift as well. Don't miss these things together in this story. Jesus is not simply a king that we worship. The Bible repeatedly describes the relationship that God has with us through his son as a marriage. And so when you read Esther chapter two this week and you go back and look through it, realize that as you read it, Jesus does not have some list of beauty prerequisites that you and I have to go through, some list of treatments that we have to endure to make us beautiful enough to be able to compete for his love and attention. That's not the kind of king and spouse that we have. You and I often come to him like that. We often think that's the way it works. That God will actually love me if I can do all of these things. If I only looked more like this kind of person, then I would know God loved me. That's not how it is at all. That's not the way our king treats us. He is a king and a spouse unlike anything you can imagine. Read the story this week and see again that Xerxes loved Esther because she was already beautiful in his eyes. But our king, the one who calls us to himself, who takes us to himself, he loves us in spite of our sins, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our lack of beauty. And it's his love towards us that ultimately makes us beautiful. Friends, God, by his grace, offers us the very righteousness that is due to Christ alone. And Christ wraps us in his righteousness so much so. Don't miss the image as you read Esther 2 this week and think about that feast that he prepared for Esther, that celebration of taking her as his bride and queen. God wraps us in the righteousness of Christ and offers us as a bride to his son and sees us in such a way that you can imagine, those of you who have been through this, You're standing there and you see the groom standing at the end of the church waiting and the doors open and the bride comes through and his eyes and his mind are completely overcome with what he sees coming down that aisle towards him and what that means. That is how God sees us as he has wrapped us literally in the beauty of his son's own righteousness and taken us to himself Friends, this is a king and a spouse unlike anything else you could ever imagine. And this is the kind of love that sets us free from everything the world says we're supposed to be, have to have in order to be loved and to find any kind of value. Believe me, it wasn't anything intrinsically beautiful about you or me that motivated him to do it. 
The Bible says all of us like sheep have wandered away. There wasn't anything beautiful about us that would attract his love towards us. Nevertheless, he loved us and gave himself up for us. And the Bible tells us that he is preparing for us a banquet in our honor, a crown that will adorn us and a place of honor at his side for all of eternity. Friends, this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word, as we prepare to receive communion together, being reminded of the body of Jesus broken and blood shed, I know there are many people here who try to carry around every single day a mountain of regret for the compromises, the failures, the sins. Friends, as you reflect on God's word this morning, as you hear the gracious call to remember the body of Jesus broken, the blood shed, I need you to hear that that regret is no match for the cross of Jesus Christ. You may sit there and say, if you only knew what I've done, just how far I've compromised, just how far I've gone. This story of Esther and Mordecai pales in comparison to my compliance, to my compromise. Friends, as you are reminded of the body of Jesus broken and the blood shed, I want you to remember that blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of your sins speaks a much better word than what you're hearing in your mind. You might say, if you only knew what I've done, friends, God needs you to hear this morning if you'll only remember what I've already done for you. That regret is no match for the gracious gift of God to those that he calls to himself and makes his own. This this piece of bread, this this cup, they're, they're just pointers. They're just focusing our eyes. They're just directing our hearts and our attention to an eternal feast that he's preparing for us. And so this morning, as a follower of Jesus, as you reflect and you hear that call to come forward, to take that bread and, and to dip it in that cup, I want you to be reminded this morning that if your king and your spouse has loved you so much to lay his own life down in your place for your sins, like Paul said, what could you ever imagine or what could ever exist that could ever separate you from such a love as this? Friends, he's unlike anyone we could ever imagine. Let me pray for us this morning, and then we're going to give you a moment to reflect on his word as we continue to respond. Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are indeed the ultimate king, the ultimate spouse, that you, you don't force us to make ourselves beautiful in order to be loved by you, in order to be known by you, in order to have your attention, but you, Your love for us makes us beautiful. You don't require that we go through any elaborate sort of sacrifices and treatments in order to be seen by you, but you sacrificed your life for us that we might truly have life. This morning, we want to know you in the depths of your love for us. We want to live the lives you've given us for your glory and our joy. So take what you have revealed and are revealing to us in your word this morning. Make it real to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. 
For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.